being here with us. Such an awesome God. We have so many reasons to lift up praises to your holy name. And what a joy and privilege it is for us to be here and to do that. Fathers, we turn our attention to the study of your word. As always, we call upon you. I'm weak. I need you desperately. Use me as your instrument this morning and open our ears and our eyes, spiritually speaking, that we might hear and see what you have for us this morning. Lord, not just that it would make us smarter people, but that it would make us people more conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless this time, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The sovereignty of God is a doctrine, excuse me, that when considered within the context of our trials and tribulations, tends to produce within us as Christians confusion and concern and some angst when it really should produce within us confidence and contentment. And I think the reason for this is because we get kind of stuck asking over and over and over again the same question, the why question. Why, Lord, is this thing happening to me? Why did you not stop this thing from happening to me? Confidence and contentment comes when we move past that question and begin to ask a different question, the how question. How, sovereign Lord, will you use this thing I'm going through for good? And how will you be glorified in it? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And as our text, we're going to go to John chapter 11 verses 45 through 57. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to John 11. Put a finger on verse 45. If you do not do not have a Bible with you, please raise your hand. Someone will make sure that you have that Bible to follow along. And by way of context, really all I need to say is the story of the passage that we're going to read comes in the immediate aftermath of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. All right, are we all there? Let me have a drink first. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. That's where I'm going to stop reading this morning. When confronted with this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, the people that were around Jesus responded in one of two different ways. For many of these folks, the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead was clear proof of Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. And so the Bible says they believed him. So there's that camp. But there were others who were hardened and confused by what they had witnessed. So they went to Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, and they ratted him out. They reported what had happened. The Pharisees apparently felt that this deed of Jesus was significant enough to call an emergency session of the Sanhedrin, essentially the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. And doubtless the Sanhedrin felt that Jesus was some sort of magician who by secret arts was deceiving these people. And they expressed their concern that if something wasn't done about it, more and more people would believe in him and begin to follow him, and the Romans would perceive that as insurrection. They simply would not stand by indifferent to insurrection. As a matter of fact, there's evidence from the writings of of the Jewish historian Josephus that the Roman authorities were nervous about the possibility of an uprising caused by messianic expectations. Obviously, the Sanhedrin were aware of the Romans' jitters, and so they concluded that if they were to let Jesus go on like this, the Romans would eventually crush what they would believe to be a Jewish revolt, that insurrection I was talking about, taking away both their place, verse 48, meaning their temple, and their nation. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, and I should say the pompous high priest of the Sanhedrin, he'd be like the chief justice, after thoroughly demeaning his colleagues, telling them that in essence they were, let's face it, it's a harsh word, but idiots for wondering what they should do, told them that clearly the only viable solution was to kill Jesus. I want you to look again at verses 49 and 50. There Caiaphas said, you know nothing at all. Nice guy, huh? Essentially, you idiots. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, it's either Jesus or us, guys. Is it so hard to figure? And so the Sanhedrin made plans that very day to put Jesus to death. Being aware of their plans to kill him, Jesus withdrew to Bethany, from Bethany to a village fifteen, about 15 miles to the north called Ephraim. It's a little town that Jesus and the disciples could rest, but also kind of strategically it was a town that was close to the Judean wilderness in case it was necessary for Jesus to escape. And it wasn't that he was afraid. He wasn't afraid at all. It just wasn't yet his time. You know what? It was a good call on Jesus' part to lay low rather than to rush right away into Jerusalem for the Passover as the Sanhedrin had put their plan into action. They had, verse 57, given orders that if anyone knew where he, Jesus, was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. But here's the thing. It wasn't just a good call on the part of Jesus. 
It wasn't just a lucky move or even an educated guess. The decision of Jesus that day to withdraw to Ephraim was the product of God's sovereignty, which I believe is the highlight and the very heart of this passage. We see the sovereignty of God very clearly, not only in the fact that nothing was about to happen to Jesus until God allowed it, until God in his sovereign timing willed it, but also, and I think even more strikingly, in the fact that, that God used, now get this, Caiaphas of all people, a man hostile to his purposes to prophesy of his purposes. That's just our God at work, right? The author of the gospel, the apostle John, by the wisdom given him via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, recognized a very deep irony in Caiaphas' cynical words. Look what he wrote in verse 51. This is John now. He said he, and he's referring to Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. Say what? Go up a verse, verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say that, according to the Apostle John, of his own accord. Now I'll go back to verse 51. We'll look at the second half of that verse. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. When Caiaphas said what he did in verse 50, he was talking about, or at least he thought he was talking about, Jesus' death as necessary so as to prevent the destruction of the nation of Israel by Rome. That's what he thought he was saying. But John saw it for what it really was. A prophecy of the atonement brought about by the substitutionary death of Jesus. An atonement that would offer forgiveness of sin not only for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world, which is what John meant when he wrote in verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas meant one thing, a very evil thing, when he opened his mouth and spoke that day. But because he is a servant of the sovereign God, he was an unwitting and unwilling servant, yes, but nonetheless he was a servant. Because of that, God chose to use his words, although they were intended for evil, to prophesy of the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Isn't that awesome? Let's just let that sink in for a minute. That is Our God at work, he's incredible. The salient point here is that our God, our incredible God is entirely sovereign. He will see his purposes through. And in order to do so, he, as the Scottish Bible scholar William Barclay put it, can use even the words of bad men. And that concludes my Scottish for the morning. Nothing. Nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Not the evil intentions of men, not the forces of hell, not accidents, not our mistakes, not our trials and tribulations, not even our willing disobedience. Nothing. God will, not might, 
Not probably, but he will see his purposes to completion regardless of the inertia that's leveled against it. He absolutely will, and that's something that we as God's children should find great confidence and contentment in. To use the words of Charles Spurgeon, and I quote, Now there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend to than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust, end quote. No one says it like Charles Spurgeon. The reality of God's sovereignty should bring us a great deal of confidence and contentment. Should, especially as we deal with trouble in our lives. However, as I mentioned earlier, it more often than not creates confusion and chaos and angst instead. When we contemplate our pain, our difficulties within the context of God's sovereignty, the first question that comes to mind, and the one that more often than not stays in mind, gets stuck in there, is this one. If God is sovereign. Why did he allow my pain? If God is sovereign, why did he allow my pain? Now, asking that question is not the problem. In fact, it's a very reasonable, very legitimate question to ask, and I'll even propose some thoughts in just a minute toward the goal of answering that question. So asking it's not the problem. The problem comes when we get stuck there when we park on that question and we never move beyond it to ask the more pertinent question, the confidence-producing question, and that is the how question. And that's the question that I'll hone in on here in just a minute. But before I do that, I want, first of all, as I promised, to propose some thoughts toward the goal of answering that why question. If God truly is sovereign, then why does he allow pain? I think the first thing that needs to be said in this regard is that God created us with free will. That is, with the ability to choose as we wish. And the reason he did that is because that's what makes true love possible. You see, God knew that we could not truly love and follow him if we had no choice in the matter. If we were programmed to do that. And that's because the essence of love is in the act of choosing to love. It's so important, I'm going to say it again, the essence of love is in the act of choosing to love. So we have been given choice so that we can truly love God and others, but unfortunately, in our ability to choose freely, we were not only given the capacity to love, we were also given the capacity to do evil or to sin. C.S. Lewis put it like this, Free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. Of course, God knew what would happen if they indeed used their freedom in the wrong way. 
Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. End quote. And we all know that we did indeed use our freedom the wrong way, that we sinned. And as a result of our freedom of choice wrongly employed, evil entered the world, and evil is at the root of all pain and suffering. Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. All that said to say that God allows our pain, at least in part, because he honors our choice. Because he allows life as we've chosen it to run its course. Now, he most certainly can and does at times calm the storm, to use the key words of Scott Cropain's 1995 song, Sometimes He Calms the Storm, and I know I date myself, meaning that at times God intervenes and he changes the situation. But I think more often than not, he calms the child instead, as Cropain puts it in his song, meaning that he allows the situation to continue as is, but he provides sufficiency of grace, and he works in and through that struggle that we're enduring for his glory. Number two, the second reason I think God allows us to experience pain and suffering rather than to shield us from it is because in and through it, that is the pain, the suffering, the struggles, the trials and temptations of our life, our character, that is our holiness, is most profoundly developed. You know what verse is coming, don't you? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. You've heard it quoted to you a million times, but you should hear it a million more because it's very apropos. James says this, count it all what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But James wasn't the only one to say it. Paul did it too. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Another translation says, Hope does not disappoint. And we all know from personal experience that it's true, don't we? that we grow the most in and through our pain and suffering. Now, we don't tend to recognize this. We're in the middle of a painful situation, but we certainly do when when that situation has passed. I know it's true for me. As much as I hate pain and suffering, I'll be the first to admit it, I am not a fan. Nevertheless, it's through the struggles that I've experienced in my life that my faith and my character has been most profoundly stretched and strengthened. Number three. This is the last reason that I'll offer as to why I think God allows us to suffer is because in and through our pain, God has an awesome opportunity to bring glory to himself. You see, God does all that he does first and foremost to magnify the worth of his glory. That's the greatest thing that God can do because in it he's valuing that which is supremely valuable, namely himself. And in it, guess what? He's preserving the fullness of our joy, and that's because our joy is rooted in his holiness. Now, the devil in the world tries to say that our joy is rooted in all kinds of other things, but that is a lie. 
All we ever find there is temporary happiness. Our joy is rooted in the glory of God. God is glorified when we see the sufficiency of his grace sustain us in the midst of our trouble. He is glorified when people see us wait on him in faith. And he is glorified when people see us worship and praise him in spite of our pain. Our sovereign God does allow us to experience pain and suffering. You know what? It's okay to ask why. It is. It's a legitimate question. But it's ultimately defeating to never move past that question. To keep ruminating over it. To keep on, keep on, to keep on asking, why, Lord, why is this happening in my life? Our contentment, our confidence in God's work of perfecting his power in our weakness comes when we move past the if God is sovereign, why did he allow my pain question to this one? Since God is sovereign, I know he is sovereign. How, God, will you use my pain? How will you work in and through my pain for your glory and for my growth? This very important question, the how question, seems to be the question that was operative in the mind of Jacob's son Joseph as he went through the troubled times that he did. Not that he never asked the why question. I imagine he did. But he didn't seem to park there. He didn't seem to get stuck in that the why rut. Based on what we read about Joseph, it seems clear that he was more interested in asking how how will my sovereign God use my affliction, my suffering, than he was in asking, why did he allow it in the first place? And I think we can learn a great deal from Joseph's example. So let's look at the story. Scene one. Joseph, by virtue of the fact that he was the favorite son of his father Jacob, and as a result of his sharing with his family the dreams he was having, in which his family would one day bow to him, not Maybe the wisest thing to do, that's just an aside. Nevertheless, that stirred the jealousy of his brothers. Genesis 37.4 says they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. So one day when Joseph, at his father's request, was checking up on his brothers as they tended the flock, they decided they would deal with him once and for all. Initially, they actually intended to kill him. Genesis 37.18 but his brother Reuben, yea, Reuben, intervened and convinced his brothers to throw Joseph into a pit rather than to take his life. And secretly, Reuben had intended to actually rescue Joseph and restore him to his father, Genesis thirty-seven twenty-two. So once again, yea, Reuben. But before Reuben could implement his plan, the brothers having decided that it would be better for them to make a profit on Joseph than to kill him, sold him for 20 shekels of silver, Genesis 37, 28, to a band of Midianite traders as they passed by. The Midianites, in turn, took Joseph to Egypt and there sold him to Potiphar, who happened to be the captain of Pharaoh's guard. All right, that's the end of scene one. Let's process before we go on, okay? I think it's fair to say, from what we know about Joseph at this point in the story, that he was experiencing tribulation. Is that a fair assessment? Right, Being sold into slavery by your family, I think that qualifies. If that were to happen to me, I think I'd have a right to say, I am now experiencing 
tribulation. Now, although nothing is directly said about how Joseph feels about this particular bit of tribulation he's experiencing, in other words, whether he's focusing on the why question or whether he's shifted to the how question, I think we get a clue about which question it is by what we read in Genesis 39.2. It says this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. Now think about it for a minute with me before you decide whether or not you agree with me. If Joseph had been continuously dwelling on the why question, why, Lord, why is this happening to me? He probably would have been shut off to the possibility of being used of and blessed by God in the midst of these trying circumstances, right? Fair assessment? Here's why I say that. I think when we get stuck on the why question, in that rut, we tend to become paralyzed. We don't look around us to see how we can be used in spite of what we're going through we tend rather to kind of fold up in our self-absorption. So I think the statement made in Genesis 39.2 is a good indication that Joseph was asking how rather than why. How will my sovereign God work in through this very dicey situation? All right, we're going to continue with the story, but I'm going to have a drink first. Scene two. Joseph was now a servant in Potiphar's house. He was a successful servant, the overseer of Potiphar's home, but a servant or a slave nonetheless. Scripture tells us, and this is Genesis 39.7, that after a time, the master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. In other words, she was taking a hankering to him. He's a good-looking guy, and she was lusting after him. She tried to seduce him, but Joseph's a good man. He wouldn't give in. He said to her in Genesis 39.9, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, she insisted. And one day, when she tried again to seduce him, he tore himself from her grasp. But, verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled got out of the house. He left, he left behind some crucial evidence. This, of course, infuriated Mrs. Potiphar, and so she decided to frame him and make it look like Joseph was the one who was pursuing her. Does this not sound like an SVU episode? So she told her husband how awful Joseph had been, and Genesis 39.20 tells us that Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Okay, end of scene two. Let's do some more processing. So here's Joseph, just trying to be a faithful guy, faithful to his boss, faithful to God. What did it get him? Jail time. The suffering continues. Fair to say? The question is, did Joseph cling to the how question? Was he still open? how God might use him, or did he revert, as many of us probably would have at this point, to the why question? Well, once again, we're not told directly, but we're given a clue in Genesis 39, 21. That verse tells us that during his time in prison, now I quote, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
that sounds to me like he was still asking the how question, that he was still open, in spite of all that's happening to him, to God's working in and through his situation. Still trusting in the sovereignty of God. All right, last scene, scene three. While in prison, Joseph was given the opportunity to interpret a couple of dreams. One for the chief cupbearer, for which he gave an accurate interpretation that had a a good outcome, a positive outcome. That is, that the cupbearer would be reinstated to his former position, which he was. But he also interpreted a dream for the chief baker, for which an accurate interpretation was given. But this one had kind of a negative, well, kind of a very negative outcome. That is, the baker would be hung. And bummer for the baker, he was Now, even though Joseph had pleaded with the chief cupbearer, this is the one who made it out alive, in Genesis 40, 14, to remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, or get me out of jail. Verse 23 tells us that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You've got to be kidding me. How do you forget something like that? I think that was selective amnesia. Two years later, Pharaoh himself had a couple of dreams that really disturbed him. So he sent for his magicians and wise men, but no one was able to interpret the dreams for him. It was at this point, probably due to visions of grandeur, public acclaim, or at the very least, Pharaoh's favor, guess who had a sudden reversal of amnesia? (laughs) Absolutely, the cupbearer. He now remembered Joseph, and specifically how Joseph accurately interpreted his dream two years earlier. And so he told Pharaoh about him. Pharaoh immediately summoned for Joseph and told him about his strange dreams. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and as a result was made the secretary of agriculture over Egypt so that he could manage the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine that Pharaoh had dreamt about and that Joseph had interpreted. And indeed, famine hit the land after the seven years of plenty just as Joseph had predicted. And interestingly, it was a famine this spread all the way to where Joseph's family lived. When Jacob, that's Joseph's father, heard that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain from, guess who? You can say it, Joseph. So they go to Egypt to buy the grain. And after messing with his brothers a little, and let's give Joseph some a break here. I think it's okay after all he's gone through that he can mess with them like he didn't you know, recognize who they were. I'm good with that. I'm glad that he messed with them a little bit. But after that, he finally revealed his identity to them and then sent for his father and the rest of the family. And so the family all came and settled in the land where they were well taken care of. Several years later, Joseph's father, Jacob, died. And when that happened, the brothers began to fear that now that their father was gone, Joseph would get his long overdue revenge. So they approached him, imagine quaking in their boots, and said to him in Genesis 50, 18, Yo, Joseph, he didn't say that actually, but behold, we are 
your servants don't hurt us. And then we get Joseph's famous response, Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, a response that, in my opinion, absolutely encapsulates the life of the person who's focused on the how question in the midst of suffering as opposed to the why question. I want you to go there. Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. This is an incredibly important verse. If you haven't already marked it, I want you to mark it. I'm going to give you something I want you to write next to the verse here in a minute. But I'll give you a chance to mark it. I just want you to highlight it, underline it, whatever. Put a big star by it. This is a critical verse. Here's how Joseph responds to his brothers when they said, Behold, we, we are your servants. He said, Do not fear. This next phrase is critical. For am I in the place of God? For you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Am I in the place of God? I'm not the sovereign one. He is. Here's what I want you to write next to that verse. And I thought about this so I could make it concise so you're not having to write a bunch of stuff. I want you to write this. How to ask how V period. That's for verses, right? Why? I'll say it again. Write this in there. How to ask how V Y. Right there. Am I in the place of God? As for you, whoever that you might be, you meant evil against me. But guess what? I serve a sovereign God. He meant it for good. Joseph wasn't interested in revenge, and I believe that's because he didn't get stuck on the why question and become embittered toward God and toward his brothers. Rather, he moved on, I think, very quickly to the how question recognizing that God is God and he is not. And that God in his sovereignty had a plan for his life that we brought to completion in spite of and even because of the evil plans made by his brothers. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God is God, and we are not. That's the point of our text, John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, as well as chapters Genesis chapters 37 all the way through 50. God is God. We are not. And God in his sovereignty has a plan for each one of our lives that will be brought to completion in spite of and sometimes even because of the Caiaphas is in our lives. In spite of and sometimes even because of the jealous brothers in our lives. In spite of and sometimes even because of the trials and the tribulations and the hurts and the pains in our lives. Because our God is sovereign. And because he has said in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, we as his children have every reason, instead of dwelling and getting stuck in the rut of, why, Lord, did this happen to me, question. To very confidently, eagerly, and joyfully move on to the what, Wonderful things, oh sovereign Lord, will you do in and through my situation? Question. We have every reason to go there. 
although we might be tempted from time to time to kind of park, to kind of get stuck on the why question. Why, Lord? Why did you allow me to lose my job? Why? I needed that job. Why, Lord, did you allow this physical ailment into my life? Why, Lord, do you allow me to struggle so much emotionally? Why, Lord, did you allow me to lose my precious loved one? Why, Lord, did you allow my financial situation to get so hard? We will be tempted to park there. The challenge for us is in the power of the Holy Spirit to trust, not only in God's sovereignty, that is, in his unwavering ability to see his purposes through, regardless of the inertia working against those purposes, but also to trust in his love displayed at the cross of Calvary and his goodness and his desire to give his children only what is in their best interest. When we can do that, when we can come to terms with the sovereignty of God, and the goodness of God, and the faithfulness of God in our lives, it's then that we can ask the why question, yes, but then move past it to the how question. How, sovereign Lord, will you use my job loss for your glory? How, sovereign Lord, will you use this physical or this emotional ailment that I struggle with to make me even stronger? How, sovereign Lord, will you use the loss of my loved one, minister to someone else around me? How, sovereign Lord, will you use my financial situation to make me more dependent upon you and to draw me closer to you? I know you can do it. I know you will. Because I know that you're sovereign and I know that you love me. Maybe... You're here this morning, and there's something going on in your life that has caused you to be stuck. But you keep on asking, why? 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 Lord, have you brought this into my life? Like I said before, it's okay to ask that question, but ultimately it's defeating to stay there. Come to terms with the sovereignty of God. He's entirely sovereign. He will see his purposes through your situation. There's nothing too difficult for him. He loves you. He cares about you. Move on to the how question. How, Lord, will you work in and through my situation for your glory and for my good? Let's pray. Come on up, worship team. Heavenly Father, we all experience times in our lives when we very rightly shake our heads and ask, why? If you're sovereign, Lord, and if you love me, why have you allowed this into my life? It's okay, because you, you can take that question. Give us the strength. Give us the faith to move past that and begin asking okay Lord here it is now how do you plan to work in and through this situation first of all for your glory that others would praise your holy name but for the growth and the development of my character to make me more like 
your son, Jesus Christ. How will you do that? I'm eager to see, and I trust you. Father, we need your help with this. We can't will ourselves to do this. So by the strength of your indwelling Holy Spirit, give us that assistance. Give us that help. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.